0: Last time I preached, a couple weeks ago at this point, I opened the sermon with a rather classic theological dilemma, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't know if you remember that. After the sermon, somebody came up to me and gave me some really good words of encouragement and affirmation. It said, you opened, Jonah, with that powerful dilemma, but he never really came back to it in the end. And he was right. And he went on to ask, will you have time, you think, in the remainder of the series in Genesis to address this topic in greater detail? And I am standing here this morning saying yes, <laughs> yes. As I looked at the text for this morning and the text for next Sunday, I realized, what else could I possibly talk about? It has to be this. And so rather than looking at chapter 37 this week and 45 next week, I actually want to look at both today. And then next week, we're going to depart from the lectionary slightly to look at Genesis chapter 50 before we pivot to Exodus on the 27th. And so turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 4, and then 12 through 28. Uh, Then I'll say a few words about this text, and we'll flip to chapter 45, where we'll read the first 15 verses. Uh, Because of this, I won't have you stand. You'd get quite a quad workout if I did. Uh, so follow along with me, friends, in Genesis 37, starting at verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers he said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Chapter 37. Here, friends, we see a wishful, bordering on arrogant young Joseph who dreams that he will rule over his brothers. Here we see a a father, Jacob, who favors his younger son, and some jealous brothers who go on to betray him. In the end, we see human beings freely acting in accordance with their makeup. We see choice after unfortunate choice, not forced or out of character, but completely explicable via emotions, personalities, fears, etc. Then we get chapter 45, and a lot happens in between. Joseph has risen in the ranks in Egypt, and he's now second in command right under Pharaoh. And his brothers travel down from Canaan looking for food, and of course they don't recognize him. So Genesis 45, I invite you to turn there with me at this time, starting at verse 1. Feel free to follow along as I read. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am Joseph. Is my father still alive?' But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come near to me, please.' And they came near. And he said, "'I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt.' And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Chapter 45. Here, friends, in Genesis 45, we see the purposes of God fulfilled. Amidst or despite the myriad of bad choices made by human beings... God's purpose to lift Joseph up, to preserve the 12 tribes, to multiply the people of Israel are fulfilled. Amidst the toxic favoritism of Jacob, the youthful arrogance of Joseph, the greed and jealousy of the brothers and the inhumanity of the slave traders, God is still working. What we see here is human agency and divine activity existing together with no contradiction. And this morning I want to explain how this can be the case. The secret to it all, the key to this age-long debate, friends, believe it or not, is Jesus. It's Jesus. And that's not just the catch-all Sunday school answer, friends. The key is Jesus. And in just a moment, I will explain how it is the key. But before we go any further, friends, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for not leaving us alone, giving us your spirit, but also a book, the Holy Scriptures. A book through which you reveal yourself still today to a people hungry, hungry for that revelation. Help us, Lord, to see clearly what it is that you have given us in Scripture, to see what is there, and even if we can't fit it together in a way that is satisfying to us, help us to accept what's there and to thank you for it. Lead us into the truth, a truth that affects the way we live, that makes us more like you every day, Jesus. We love you and thank you for this privilege. In Christ's name. Amen. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility, those are the items on the table for us this morning. And what I'd like to do first is give you a kind of overview of the debate in very, very broad strokes in one sermon. Uh, There are kind of two classic directions in this debate. And uh, let me just say, when I interviewed for this position, I was asked where I stand with regard to those positions, and I was asked if I could tolerate a church that is composed of folks of both persuasion, and uh, I said yes. And so, in the history of the Baptist tradition, you have the general and the particular Baptists who were very distinct at one time, but over the years have come together, and even in this church, we have a a diversity of opinion on this issue. And so this is a very live topic question for us today. The first solution that I want to present to you is one that has been offered by many throughout history. I'll, I'll try not to name names, denominations, traditions. But this solution claims that God causes human beings to do what they do in order to accomplish his purpose. And again, I'm painting with broad strokes here, but that is the general idea. The thought is for God to be truly in control, truly sovereign, he must directly influence or control all activity in the universe. And the major criticism of this solution is that in this case, it doesn't seem that human beings are actually free agents, since God seems to tinker with their will. That's solution one. Again, broad strokes. Now, solution two, on the other hand, claims that God knows what human beings will freely do and articulates his plan accordingly. So he sees what humans will will do with their own free will, and he says, that, that is my plan. For humans to be truly free, says this view, their actions must be undertaken with no external influence, no one pushing on their will. The major criticism here is that God isn't actually sovereign. Sovereign since humans and their free choices determine what his will is. Those are, in broad strokes, the two directions of the debate. Now this, like I said, is a debate that's been going on arguably since the fourth century. And it's one that has been very live in my own life. I remember debating it in college In the dorms, yeah, that's what you talk about at Bible college is this kind of thing. And then, of course, in seminary, and I've had a number of conversations with people here in the past few years. But only recently, friends, did I discover that both positions, both directions, rely on a rather key assumption. Both solutions assume that God and human beings exist on the same level of reality. And that their actions or their will, in other words, compete for space. Now, to illustrate this assumption, I want you to picture a chair, an empty chair. I really should have brought, I guess we have one, but picture a chair. And you want to sit in the chair, so you start walking toward it. But as it turns out, your friend Tom, Tom sits in the chair before you. So Tom is currently sitting in the chair. For you, a physical, tangible human being, to sit down in that chair right now, what has to happen first? How does Tom's sitting in the chair relate to or inhibit your desire to sit in that chair? Now my thought is, unless Tom is dressed up like Santa Claus and you're a child at the mall before Christmas, you cannot both sit in that chair at the same time. That would be a problem. Your existence and Tom's existence compete for space because they're on the same level for you to sit in that chair, Tom needs to get up and leave. You can't fully sit in that chair at the same time without some contradiction of the laws of nature. And friends, this is how some tend to think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. For God to be truly sovereign, some say, for him to sit in that chair, humans must lose just a little bit of their free will. Or for humans to be truly free, for them to sit in the chair, God must lose just a little bit of His sovereignty. Now this assumes, though, that God and human beings exist on the same level of reality, that their wills compete for space. But friends, this simply is not true. Let me give you another illustration. I want you to imagine that a dishwasher has been installed. Now, a dishwasher is a combination of metal, plastic, rubber, probably other materials. This one is new, it's shiny, paid for, set up. All it needs is to be plugged in. When you plug in the dishwasher, how much space does the electricity take up? In other words, how much of the dishwasher must you remove to make space for the electricity? The racks, the frame, this annoying silverware holder thing. Does all that stuff have to come out? For electricity to fill the dishwasher, how much of the dishwasher needs to leave? Now, of course, that's an absurd question. I should probably be put somewhere special because I've asked it. Electricity and dishwashers do not compete for space because they don't exist in the same way. We know this. One is not a physical thing like the other is a physical thing. More of this doesn't mean less of that. And I, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, okay? <laughs> Friends, in the person of Jesus Christ, we, if we're Christians, profess there to be 100% humanity and 100% divinity there at the exact same time if you do church history you'll see that many have struggled with this claiming that jesus had to be less than human to be fully god or vice versa but anything less than a hundred percent of both would actually qualify as heresy in the history of the church Jesus can be both fully divine and fully human at the same time, just like a dishwasher and electricity can be fully present at the same time. Divinity and humanity, like electricity and matter, they don't compete for space. In Jesus Christ, we see that more of God doesn't mean less of humanity. In Jesus Christ, we see a genuine human being with the personality, with DNA, with certain drives and desires, who is completely and fully active at the same time as the eternal Son of God Himself. That's what we claim as Christians. Now, what this means for our texts this morning is that God can be acting completely. While human beings act freely with no contradiction whatsoever because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Only because divinity and humanity exist differently can this be the case. What this means then is that Jacob can freely show favoritism, Joseph can freely flaunt youthful arrogance. And the brothers can freely vent jealousy and God's purposes are still somehow fulfilled. To pose that God's will butts against or competes with the will of human beings is to pose that they exist in the same way or on the same plane, but they don't. If they did... You could never have 100% of one and 100% of the other as we confess to be present in the person of Jesus Christ. You couldn't have it. God and creation do not compete. God's not a thing like you and me. So while you and I can exercise our complete and utter free will making deliberate choices on the basis of personality, experience, logic, God can still be said to be completely sovereign throughout. Both can be true. I then would discourage you from claiming that all of Jacob's, all of Joseph's, all the brothers, all the traitors' actions were directly caused by God and not freely undertaken by those actors. Because this assumes that the only way for God to be in control is for him to hijack the will of human beings. This is false. At the same time, though, I discourage you from claiming that all of Jacob's, all of Joseph's, the brothers, the traitors' actions were so free that they're exempt from God's guiding hand or unusable in his plan. This assumes that the only way for humans to be free is for God to sit back and look into the future and call what he sees there his will. To say it again, friends, the will of God and the will of humans don't butt against each other. It's not a zero-sum game. More of this doesn't mean less of that. So after years of struggle with this issue, and I have struggled with it, I believe today that God is the sort of being who can be simultaneously sovereign over all things while allowing creatures to freely choose with absolutely no contradiction. I think the Bible we possess presents us with human beings who make completely free choices, and with a God whose will is never thwarted, never threatened by any human decision. We don't have to choose one or the other. So to come back then to the dilemma that I raised a couple weeks ago, God's sovereignty doesn't infringe on human freedom. And human freedom doesn't infringe on God's sovereignty. Humans are free. God is sovereign. Both are true. Now only because God is other, divine, and thus different from things like you and me, only because of this can he work in this way. And in the person of Jesus Christ... And in spirit filled believers like you and me, we see this paradox on full display. You, friends, you have the freedom to make good, thoughtful, godly choices. You do. God is not forcing your hand. Yet, God is sovereign and in control somehow which means that even when, not if, even when we make the worst choices, choices which cause real people to suffer, God's mission is still fulfilled. This week, friends, I want you to just be encouraged by these truths. We have to make a lot of choices in our lives, and we have the freedom to do so And we will harm others when we make bad choices. But I want you to know that God and human beings can be fully active, fully present to one another with absolutely no contradiction. Let's pray. Lord, mystery is something we need to revitalize in the church. You are mysterious. We try to understand all the mechanics of of how it works, how this and that can fit together in Scripture, but sometimes, Lord, we need to just admit mystery. The Bible has both, both directions of this debate and it's the Bible you've given us. It's how you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. May we accept it. May we not try to argue our way out of it, systematize it, confine it to categories and compartments, help us to look at it, speechless and in awe, to look at you, and to just worship. Lord, thank you so much for becoming human in the person of Jesus, for choosing to be known, knowable that way. And thank you for breathing your spirit, your divine spirit into us, vessels of clay, so that somehow you and we can be active at the same time, fumbling around through life as your purposes are still fulfilled be glorified through our worship of you this morning and for many future mornings. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.